Welcome to the Filmlings Podcast, a weekly podcast where we analyze all that goes into effective filmmaking. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Alex. And this is week 21, Clash of the Kongs. Dun, dun, dun. That's right, Jonathan. We have not one, not two, but three King Kongs this week. Yeah, so we ran a poll on our Twitter account, uh, which you can find at the Filmlings, um, because we've talked about some reboots and some adaptations, but I don't think we've done a true remake uh, episode. So that's what we wanted to do, and y'all voted on King Kong. So, you know, initially we were thinking about the 1933 and the 2005 version, and then we found, oh, hey... They did this uh, in 1976 also, and so we're going to talk about that because that happened. Right, right, and we we do want to be clear. We are not talking about any of the uh, King Kong, Godzilla, crossover, giant universe type uh, films. We are just talking about pure King Kong, the original, and uh, the reboot, and the reboot slash remake slash sequel slash... Uh, what are we even calling it this week, Jonathan? Well, no, there there are two different remakes, so that's one of the things we want to clarify as far as terms, because these terms get thrown around all the time. Uh, so basically, a reboot is like we looked at with the Batman series, where it's a character, it has an existing, um, you know, canon, or I guess a. a a wide variety of different ways that the character can go. And so uh, each iteration kind of takes it in a slightly different direction. Um, And then there are adaptations, which are like we looked at with our Akira Kurosawa Samurai and Sombreros episodes, and also with our Pride and Prejudice episode, which is basically taking an existing work and adapting it into a different setting, a different time period, adding fantasy elements, etc. But a remake is basically taking the same story that was made a long time ago and doing it again. So that's what we're looking at this week. Uh, 1976 can kind of be considered um, a reboot, but I think it holds close enough that we could still call it a remake. Right, it only changes a few elements, and uh, if you look at the large plot points, you're essentially just rehashing the 1933 version of King Kong. Yeah. And that's one of the things that we want to talk about is the fact that King Kong was brought to life through the 1933 film. I think we both were under the impression that King Kong was older than that as far as a uh, idea or a mythos or something like that. But that's actually not the case. Right, right. And I think it's strange for a lot of people to hear that, or at least I I, I have that impression, um, because King Kong is so ubiquitous. You know, he's so iconic, standing on top of the Empire State Building. Um, Spoilers, but I feel like almost everybody's seen that image. Yeah, they know. It hasn't even been, it has not even been 100 years. Um, It's not, it hasn't even been 90 years. And King Kong is one of the most iconic monsters movie monsters to ever have existed on in in the globe right up there with uh godzilla almost everybody knows him and i think that's why you see pairings between the two um but it is interesting to look over the course of these three films and um 
you know, definitely 1933 created and cemented the the fame of King Kong. But how was that myth uh, recreated in the 1976 and then in the 2005 version? Absolutely. So those are uh, the three films that we'll be looking at. The 1933 version of King Kong, which was directed by both Marion C. Cooper and Ernest B. Mm, Shodshak. <laughs> Close enough. Yeah. Um, so basically, Marion C. Cooper had had like been fascinated with gorillas and large monkeys from a very early age and at some point decided that he would like to make a movie about them and he had this idea of having a gigantic gorilla fight a gigantic Gila monster um, and at that time claymation was starting to uh, be kind of the cool new visual effects technology and a lot of newer things could be done with live action film that you can't actually film and of course you know digital graphics hadn't been created so this you could kind of sense throughout the film that it's it's built for the effects that are put into it very true and we'll we'll be seeing that over the course of um all three films today that that each have a different set of special effects incorporated into them um because 76 you know special effects had come along a little farther um and the 76 movie uh, garnered a bit of a reputation for its special effects um that might be viewed a little differently today <laughs> as we'll explore yeah um but then yeah, again I think- it was still pre-cgi and then in 2005 is you know that's peter jackson so of course there's going to be cgi involved in a lot of it um so it'll be interesting to see that transition between uh claymation uh, effectively green screen effects in 76 and then in cgi in 2005 yeah this story is the is kind of traces the history of visual effects um from almost the beginning of film history to the current day. So it'll be an interesting look. Um, so Jonathan, do you want to set up the 1933 version for us um, with a little little summation so we can uh, start talking about these individual breakdowns here? Yeah, so this is, as we've been saying, the original, and the story will carry over into our other two. So just to set up basically the... Um, you know, the canon, I guess, story of King Kong is there's a crew that's setting out. In this one, it's a film crew, and they have their leading lady, and they're going to this island that they have a map of that has never been discovered. And so they're just following the coordinates, and they're trying to find this really interesting location to use to sell the film as this really exciting movie. When they get there, they find a tribe of natives um, who have this strange ritual of sacrificing a a woman to this mystery thing that's behind this gigantic wall that they've erected. Basically, the actress gets captured and sacrificed and this huge gorilla comes out of the woods and captures her. And then the rest of the crew spend the movie trying to rescue her, end up rescuing her and kidnapping King Kong and bringing him back to New York putting him on display for everyone to see uh, in chains and stuff, which turn out to be not very effective because he breaks out 
recaptures the actress. Her name is uh, Anne Darrow and cl- climbs on top of the Empire State Building to get to high ground where he is then shot down by um, military aircraft. And that is the tragedy of King Kong. Yep, that's pretty much it in its entirety. That's basically everything. Um, and all, all that's left in between is some dialogue and a whole lot of claymation. Um, yeah. But that's, I mean, that's pretty much it. And we're not going to worry about a spoiler section this week. Um, it's its a very iconic. It's such a classic, it's, yeah. It's so iconic. And that's part of what we're emphasizing this week with it being uh, a near instant classic in in the in the film canon in the film pantheon that you don't have to worry about spoiling it for anybody because like i said before almost everybody has seen that iconic image of um king kong standing on top of the empire state building swatting at biplanes and that's that's the climax of the movie right there that's the end so right after that climactic scene um in fact probably the last bit of the movie is the famous quote the iconic quote from the filmmaker within the movie, he's actually a character, um, Carl Denham, uh, and he he says, over, standing over the body of Kong at the base of the Empire State Building, uh, that it wasn't the airplanes, it was beauty killed the beast. And that that is um, kind of the theme of the first movie, which, um, just, just to be straightforward with our audience here, uh, was de- certainly meant to be a B-movie, uh, Monsters at the time, monster movies like that, were almost always B-movies. And in fact, it almost holds true to these days, unless it's going to be a very large um, CGI bonanza, 2005 King Kong. um, Right. Then monsters are almost always relegated to B-movies. And that's just part of the history of cinema um, and and a lot of genre... um, genre filmmaking is that there be movies um and that that was what king kong was and then he just ended up being too iconic to be kept in b movies yeah and that's one of the interesting things that we are probably going to talk about a little bit later is kind of what makes this story hold sway with so many film it's an influence for so many um filmmakers you know peter jackson most notably uh, was very influenced by King Kong and, you know, brought a lot of that kind of campy monster effects to his early movies. And then, you know, obviously King Kong culminated that as kind of a giant fanboy film. But uh, in this movie, it's interesting because we have that, like you said, that theme put in there, but it's kind of dusted on top. It's not, it's not delved into very deep. You know, the movie starts with this title card that says, an old Arabian proverb or something um, that said, uh, you know, beauty stayed the hand of the beast and it ended up being his downfall or whatever. That's paraphrase. Um, but it's like they were trying to get into this idea and they throw in there that the the shipmate who is the love interest with Andero is kind of the beast because he's, you know, a rough and tough sailor guy. And then she tames him and makes him meek and wants to get married and settle down. But they don't they don't spend the time on it that they do with, you know, King Kong fighting other beasts. Uh, that's definitely what you, you walk away with. That's the sense of what the movie is about, even though they tried to hit this deeper note. Right, right. And that and it has that ring to it that um, 
that cheesy monster movie B movie ring to it with um, kind of kind of like a light emotional arc to it that isn't super developed and then it's mostly about the monster and the monster doesn't really have an arc at all like King Kong just hits things in this um, in this version he hits things yeah he has a little bit of things those moments where he cocks his head and looks a little bit more confused than anything at her and that's kind of it the the connection is very much one-sided in this one like Kong likes Andero she just wants to get out of there and that's about it yeah and he he almost literally idolizes her she's I, I think she's supposed to represent the golden idol because she has um blonde hair I think I think that's what they were driving at um well actually that's uh, a little bit of a logistical thing as far as the making of this film because they wanted her they want because this film is black and white obviously and as far as the claymation you have the big gorilla with dark black fur and so they wanted her to be blonde and white obviously to contrast with him but it also and also it was 1933 yeah and it's 1933 but that's (laughs) at least the blonde element is to and that carries through all of these films yeah yeah it just became part of um you know and and darrow was immortalized alongside kong um and that includes uh and darrow's look you know and her scream and and her scream um weren't you saying there's a a scream contest to try to match the best scream from the original king kong yeah there are actually fey ray uh scream alike contests where people will try and you know scream like the original king kong and another interesting fey ray fact is that the empire state building dimmed its lights for several minutes uh, after she passed away in memorandum of her so that's kind of interesting yeah yeah that sounds like the empire state building um <laughs> but but you heard it here folks find if you think you're good at screaming find a fay ray screaming contest near you you can find that on google not a sponsor <laughs> um <laughs> Yeah, so a lot of the characters in this film end up being pretty flat with not much of an arc. Um, Carl Denham, the filmmaker, kind of has a bit of an arc. Um, the filmmaker realizes, character in the movie. Yeah, the filmmaker character within the movie. All these movies also end up being a little meta, so it gets a little confusing to talk about them, especially with 2005. Especially 2005, Which right. will leave for 2005's discussion. Um but Carl Denham has a bit of an arc. And John Driscoll, the male lead, the, the rough and tough, quote, beast of a sailor who is tamed by uh, Andero into to being a big softy, um, also has a bit of an arc because he goes from being um, a beast to being have tamed by beauty. But Kong himself doesn't really have an arc. He's just the monster of the movie. And in fact, he really doesn't have... Um, too much emotions like I said a second ago he kind of just hits things and like you said he kind of just tilts his head and uh, part of that is just you know uh, you know kind of the way you think of a monster in 1933 is their purpose in a film is to be scary and to hit things and be life-threatening and kill people um, but also you know the the technology the claymation was still kind of new you know you're still kind of figuring it out as an art form and still figuring out how, how do we put emotion on these characters faces 
Yeah, and you know, you kind of have to take all of our comments with a grain of salt as far as we're looking back on it from 2017 where we have some of the greatest well clearly the greatest visual effects so far as far as film history goes um but yeah like you were saying this is pretty revolutionary stuff and the the claymation was done by willis o'brien uh who is kind of the the proto ray harryhausen he this movie is actually one of the inspirations for ray harryhausen to get into claymation um and he ended up becoming friends with Willis O'Brien later on. But the, Willis O'Brien had done other films like uh, The Lost World, which came out a few years earlier in 1925. And, I mean, we, we have to kind of try to put on our glasses of, you know, this is pretty, pretty exciting stuff as far as 1933 goes. Our um, 1933 goggles. Our 1933 goggles. Um, if we can still see out of them through the dirt. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, I mean, I was even kind of surprised with some of the the fight scenes at because some of them are kind of brutal, you know, as far as the monsters fighting each other, the way King Kong, you know, will rip the T-Rex's jaw off and then kind of shake his head to make sure he's dead or the, the serpent monster where he takes him and whips his head on the rock to, to kill it. Um, I mean, it was still a little bit of, of, uh, whoa, that's, <laughs> I, you know, cause I, I can never really gauge how violent people were expecting things to be in ages previous to our own current age. Right, right. And again, that's, but well before, well before the movie rating system was a thing and it was, it was basically just self-policed by the film studios themselves as to what was okay to put in a movie and i can see um i can see you know the point of a monster film is the monster's supposed to be scary the action is supposed to be exciting and you have this new technology uh new for the time um what, what are we going to do with it what how how intense can we take this um how, how intense can we make this how far can we take it and and they did that um and I will say, you know, the question of whether or not the the claymation holds up, I think it, it, it does hold up fairly well. Better than you would expect it to, for sure. Yeah. And um, there's another interesting thing as far as the, uh, the use of the claymation and the effects, which is that Marion C. Cooper actually did not care at all as far as the continuity of Kong's size in this movie. So basically, his philosophy was whatever looks best for the shot that we're making right now, make him that size. So, you know, he might be 40 feet when he's climbing the Empire State Building, but 18 feet whenever he's interacting with Andero. Um, and honestly, I didn't even notice that until I read it somewhere uh, later on. So it, it kind of worked as far as, you know, if you're kind of into the story, you don't notice that that much of continuity. For sure. I mean, I didn't know that that was a thing until you just told me. Um, so so there's some proof for you. And I think uh, the big takeaways for this film um, was just how exciting it was for, um, for its time back in 1933, uh, back when the Empire State Building was 
almost brand new and filmmaking was almost brand new and you know we keep mentioning how much this has influenced um, other filmmakers and it really has and it had a big impact on cinema itself um, and not only that but you know obviously it established the legend of King Kong uh, which it stays super popular to these days. Um, if you go to the gift shop in the Empire State Building, which I've been to many times, um, it has so much King Kong paraphernalia in there. Oh, I bet. It's, it's, it's all over the place. And not just there, all over New York, all over the country, you can find King Kong stuff online. Nearly everybody knows about King Kong. Um, and yeah, while and while you know maybe the story is a little bit lacking in those emotional arcs, and by that I mean a lot of bit lacking in those emotional arcs, <laughs> um, some of that comes from the fact that filmmaking was brand new, and the art of mixing thriller and emotional tale on screen was still coming into its own and still being figured out um, in the 1920s and 1930s. And we're used we're used to those having already been um, put together these days. But that being said, the original King Kong, 1933, hasn't lost all of its glory. It's still, um, it's still on the AFI Top 100. People still love this movie. I really like this movie still, even though parts of it can drag for me. Sometimes I get taken out when I'm looking at <laughs> rear screen projected claymation dinosaurs. Yeah. Um, it's still quite amazing and certain scenes you just get wrapped up in whether it's king kong seeing andero for the first time um whether it's uh king kong on top of the empire state building probably that one specifically um you know it's just a film that sticks with you and it's clearly stuck with the cinematic um culture over over years and years yeah and king kong as a character has been able to held his hold his head up high against, you know, other movie monsters like Godzilla and the like. Um, so it's per- permeated because it wasn't even too long after this film that uh, that King Kong actually faced Godzilla from Toho Studios. Um, so it was kind of an international success pretty much right off the bat. Um, but let's kind of fast forward a little bit into the 1970s and uh, see what kind of remake we get when we put it in a little bit of a modern setting. But Jonathan, do, do, do we have to? Do we have to look at the 1976 movie? Is it absolutely necessary? We have to, Alex. It won an Oscar. Oscar winning <sighs> King Kong 1976. Man, if anybody ever... <laughs> so if anybody ever thinks that the Oscars are important... <laughs> or, or like they, they're really meaningful. I will want to point out that the 1976 King Kong movie won the Oscar for Best VFX. And I don't know how. <laughs> so this movie came out before CGI. Let's put that out there. Um, and they really rehashed it. In fact, the filmmaker and the writer have are on record as saying... We want to do King Kong, but we want to do it as differently from 1933 as possible. Um, and they did, including... Well, they didn't by today's standard where, you know, they would put King Kong in space or something. But they kept <laughs> to enough. the story with a different setting. Fair enough. But they did go in a different direction. For instance, 1933 went in a good direction. Um, key, so King Kong 1976, the premise is 
1976, that's where the story is set, instead of 1933, like the 1933 and the 2005 version are. Um, and instead of filmmakers on an expedition to make a mysterious movie uh, based off of a mysterious map, it is an oil company looking for oil and a very hairy Jeff Bridges who wasn't quite able to grow his full beard yet. No um, symbolism here. <laughs> um, who is... Oh gosh, he has like three jobs. He's like a doctor and a paleontologist and a journalist, all wrapped into one. But yeah. essentially, he does. He wants. He wants to stop the big bad oil company from um, doing bad oil company things, like ruining the environment. And then along their journey, after Jeff Bridges, the stowaway, has been discovered um, and is about to be kicked off, actually, he sees a life raft where a wannabe Hollywood starlet is floating, dehydrated, after she was crashed on a ship with a Hollywood producer, which I think is their allusion to the the filmmaker and actress dynamic in the original King Kong. Um, but they just killed the filmmaker off. Yeah. And uh, then they go to the island and things uh, happen with King Kong and King Kong is just a guy in a gorilla suit and um, they use green screen to accomplish it and they do a really bad job of it like you can see the green on the screen um, during certain parts of the movie and uh, they go to New York they put him up as like a mascot for the oil company. Right, and instead of like at a theater. And instead of climbing the Empire State Building, he climbs um, the World Trade Center. One of them. Because um, I guess they wanted to be modern with it. And, and then well, he gets... Yeah, with a stupid excuse of, this looks exactly like his home, his home environment. How how does a shiny building look exactly like his home environment? Like because it's there were two stone pillars that were standing that were kind of next to each other, and those look like the Empire or the World Trade Center, and so he knew that King Kong was going to go there because it looked like his home. I guess, but um, anyway, do they even do they even use what do they use helicopters in this one? Yeah. Yeah, they use helicopters to try to shoot him down. Um, yeah. What's your take on it, Jonathan? What What do you think about this film? Um, I'm over here trying not to laugh as you as you talk about the thing because I forgot about how ridiculous some of the changes are. Um, the The fact that oil is what drives the plot throughout the whole movie is kind of the most ridiculous thing because it's a MacGuffin. And I don't remember if we've defined what a MacGuffin is uh, on the podcast before, but it's a thing that the characters care about, but the audience has absolutely no interest in. It's just a thing to get the characters to do things. Um, and oil has got to be the most boring MacGuffin ever. Uh, it's so cliche. It's cliche. It's like, I guess it's the 70s, so activism is a thing. So, you know, you've got the the big, bad uh, corporate bad guy 
um, and environmentalism going on. Um, but it's like at the same time that it's got that the movie is trying to take the moral high ground on that side, it's also got uh, really base humor and uh, stuff like that. Like the portrayal of the female character is not the most flattering and oh, um, not flattering at all. It's a it's a very conflicted film, and you you have to kind of just wonder how it was made and how it became the fifth top grossing film from 1977. Uh, yeah, they were, and how it won an Oscar, and how they <laughs> and thought how it, it was Oscar. going to compete with Jaws, um, which came out like one or two years before it. Right. So, yeah, this is another thing that the producer was actually. I think they made a joke about it on SNL where uh, someone playing the producer has a line who says, when Jaws dies, no one cries. When Kong dies, everyone will cry. And I don't think he ever actually said that in an interview, but he got pretty close. And I'll include a link to uh, one of those interviews in the in the notes. But basically, he was saying that he was getting emotional at the end of this movie and uh there actually is one interesting change at the end of the movie that we could talk about a little bit later. Um, but can we just focus on the, the female character right now and King Kong, uh, the visual effects, because those are the things that work the least well in this adaptation, aside from oil, which I'm just going to pretend didn't happen for now. Certainly. Um so yeah, so uh, in the 1933 version, as we already said, they used a mix of rear screen proje- projection, um, claymation models, and even though I didn't mention it, there's some scenes where they actually built large-scale versions of uh, parts of Kong, like if his hand is reaching through a window to grab um, Andero out of a room, uh, then they actually built like a, a super big gorilla hand and then stuck it through a window and then they put Andero in it and then took Andero out of the window with the giant monkey hand. And that um, hand stars in this movie. <laughs> that hand stars in this movie. Um, so, the as, as I said before, uh, this movie is done with a mix of green screen and a dude in a gorilla suit. Um, well, it's an animatronic gorilla suit, just to be fair. Oh, it is an animatronic? I thought it was a guy in a well, suit. Well, the, the face has you know animatronics to move the the eyes and the mouth and stuff like that but other than that yeah it's a man walking around okay, not even so, pretending to be a gorilla so it's a guy notably not andy circus because he was probably like a baby um <laughs> in a gorilla suit with uh some some servo uh stuff on his face to to make his expressions happen I think there were actually like seven Kong masks. So yeah, they they put a lot of work into the masks and the the facial movement, and it still just looks like rubber. Which is a shame because oh boy, does the green screen fall apart. Yeah. Oh man, does the green screen fall apart. I mean, it's it's a little iffy going into the the island scenes, but there's a part where Andero is being held by Kong in the forest after she's been kidnapped by the first the islanders and then by kong um during the ceremony and she's being swung around and there's just these big green blobs on the screen as she's swinging around and that's the green screen that didn't come out during the um 
effects application process. Right. And then also anytime someone falls from a height and they kind of traced out the person uh, with green and made them fall, you can, it's kind of just this really strange effect where you can, there's almost this border uh, of green, kind of a light green border around anything that they've added into the image afterwards. And we could pick up on it really easily nowadays, but I guess it wasn't distracting back then, which I don't know how that's possible, but it won the VFX Oscar. I'm just going to keep bringing that up because that's in- incredible. It, it, it really is. Um, because even though, even though green screen was still fairly young at the time, it still wasn't, you know, it still isn't as, as ubiquitous as it is now where you have an app on your phone that can do green screen for you automatically. Right. Um, even though the effect was new, the fact that they thought the finished result of it looked good enough to ship to theaters is, is just flabbergasting. It, it just makes no sense. Um... Like, if the rear screen projection had had, like, a crew guy walk through the background and you see a giant foot next to the dinosaur uh, in the 1933, they wouldn't have used that strip of film. Um, but in 1976, there's clearly ineffective effects that are not working the way they are intended to work, and they, they just stuck with them. Yeah, it, and I guess it, we it have just to... It does not make sense. I guess we have to say that, again, we're we're... You know, looking back on this film, and I, I guess that if that was the peak of the visual effects of that time, then you wouldn't really notice it as much. But it's just the fact that our graphics have become, for the most part, so seamless that we, it's just really obvious whenever we see that. And uh, but I mean, aside from the green screen effects. They had some pyrotechnics, which was kind of cool because nowadays you don't see a lot of like real pyrotechnics. It's usually those are pretty easy to add in after the fact. Um, yeah. But the the other thing that really falls apart is the hand and the face in the close ups because they're just so rubber. Yeah. Especially one point <laughs> she's she goes off uh, and or, or actually her name is Dewan in this film. Um, I don't know why they chose to call her Dwan, but aside from that, she goes on this rant to King Kong once she gets captured first and uh, hits him on the nose or something, and the little rubber mask just kind of jiggled. And I was like, yeah. oh, man, they just left that. <laughs> they were just they were just cool with it. That, that looked good. Um, and, you know, this film is so easy to compare with Jaws because, you know, the filmmakers compared, compared it with Jaws. It to- they thought they were competing with Jaws. Um and, and Jaws had its own share of uh, VFX problems during production, but they got around with it with learning how to, you know, use minimal VFX, um, showing the shark only enough to make it convincing. Well, yeah, and as far that's as doable when, when in you... Jaws, but in King Kong, where the, the character has to be on screen so much, um, they just couldn't compensate for that fact. They, they couldn't compensate for the flaws in their VFX with the sheer amount of screen time that Kong necessitated. Right. And we're talking about the, the animatronics, not any kind of uh, digital VFX. But yeah, in, in 
Jaws, they're able to conceal it and only use it at impactful moments, and that works. But yeah, and the other thing as far as putting a guy in a monkey costume, you know, the least you could do is try to act like a monkey. But he just walks around. <laughs> he just he just yeah, kind of just saunters. Kind of there. He just saunters on two feet. Um, doesn't you know? I think I think the claymation gorilla acted more like a gorilla than uh, than this one did. Yeah, yeah. And I don't think you know. I don't think uh, we intended to spend too much time talking about King Kong nineteen seventy six. Um, but I think the most interesting thing about King Kong 1976 is that we had no idea that there was a King Kong movie put out in 1976 um, until we started doing research for this episode and what King Kong uh, remakes and reboots and uh, requels we were going to do for this week. Um, And we, we discovered it and we were like, huh? What's that? And I feel like most people um these days who maybe didn't see that in theaters uh wouldn't know about it because it's just completely faded it doesn't even have a cult following as far as i know not at all not i and and i don't think the reason it faded was just because um the vfx were so shoddy and so forgettable but because they strayed so far from um, from the mythos and the legend that was established in 1933 um, and just kind of try to go out on their own path and then, you know, on top of that did not do a good job of it with the VFX and bring that part of the filmmaking home and then you just end up with a kind of bad forgettable movie and we forgot it um, and so we're bringing up back again now for comparison to whereas the 1933 movie um we know about it. Plenty of filmmakers know about it. It's shown in film schools. Um, it's it's, it's on, on the Roger AFI Ebert's top one hundred top films list. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, it's still around. It uh, achieved a legacy that nineteen seventy six has no chance of doing outside of a mystery science theater three thousand episode. <laughs> so, which I don't know if they do Oscar winning movies on. I'm I'm just gonna keep bringing that up, but. Yeah, let's talk about kind of the dramatic elements and some of the things that they changed uh, because Jeff Bridges is the love interest for Dewan, but instead of being any kind of seaman, he's, you know, this paleontologist, anthropologist, photographer, journalist, whatever, a bunch of stuff. Yeah, and a doctor. Um, And she's an actress, so they really have no reason to be together other than the script says that they should and then they have these kind of weird tense moments where he's like all you really want are fur coats and nice things she's like no i can do without them and it just feels really forced um and uh jeff bridges is not particularly convincing in this movie um he didn't seem that into it to be honest with you yeah he kind of phoned in his performance and that but you kind of lose this this theme like at least 1933 had this theme of beauty and the beast that was running through it and you have to remember that 1933 is before disney's popularization of the beauty and the beast story that we know of now um but at at least it had that thread of okay we could see how a rough character can be tamed by a more gentle character but we get none of that. It's just kind of a basic 
drama. Um, and then at the end of the movie, you know, there's no tie back to that. It's kind of, she gets surrounded by paparazzi and he realizes that, I don't know, he, he doesn't fight for her. It's, and I'm reading a lot into the ending, but I'm trying to pull something out of it. Uh, but it, it just doesn't because I don't even remember it. <laughs> it just doesn't land. And the other interesting thing about the ending, like the one interesting thing change that I found in this movie is that after he falls off of the World Trade Center after being shot down by military helicopters in this one, uh, he's still alive when the paparazzi get on top of him and start snapping photos and all that kind of stuff, which I think is a really interesting um, kind of tragic moment of you know, still being alive and being totally defeated and uh, he can see Dewan there and all this stuff. So, but that's, but there wasn't any lead up to, for that to pay off because there was this weird moment in the middle of the movie where she went from trying to escape from Kong to being Kong's friend. And that's kind of one of the biggest issues with this one is that again, there was no connection between the two until the script said that there was a connection between the two. Right. Right. So I think, I think we can all agree to just go back to forgetting about 1976. (laughs) And I think we can move on to, um, 2005 and a movie that I feel doesn't get enough love. Um, yeah, it has a weird split of, of critical reception, which we'll talk about. Yeah. Yeah, but Peter Jackson's 2005 King Kong film, um, which gets super meta, super intense, super CGI. Jonathan, do you want to set us up for that? Yes, King Kong 2005, the fulfillment of the prophecy. (laughs) Um, Basically, in 2005, Peter Jackson had just finished his Lord of the Rings trilogy, and this is kind of a, a director indulgence project. Uh, which I'm not mad about. And he went back to a work that he loved, the 1933 King Kong movie, and decided to update it and make it as big and bad as he could with all of the technology and um, acclaim that he had garnered from the Lord of the Rings trilogy. So we're back to a film crew setting off on a voyage to an unknown uh, island to film a movie um, we actually have more than one cast member in this movie. <laughs> so there's Dan yeah. Darrow and Bruce Baxter, who is um, the love interest in the movie. And in the this is going to be really hard to talk about in the larger movie. He's kind of this pompous, uh, self-concerned actor in the smaller movie. He's the love interest basically playing the uh, John Denham character from 1933 and that's that's the meta element of this movie is that essentially the film being filmed inside of this movie is the 1933 king kong um so jack black plays the movie uh producer um adrian brody plays the script right who's jack driscoll who is now the love interest with ann darrow played by nicole kidman and they go to the island same thing happens she gets kidnapped. Uh, she gets rescued. They capture King Kong, bring him to New York. Uh, King Kong trashes New York, takes Anne up to the top of the Empire State Building, gets shot down. We get our line again. It was Beauty Killed the Beast. There you go. Yeah, yeah. But, 
but big but here um it has all of the action of the 1933 version some would say too much cgi depends on your stance on cgi i feel like um the the cgi in king kong is still really good still feels kind of like lord of the rings um in that era of peter jackson filmmaking um where you can enjoy the cgi plus some more action <clears throat> bug scene um <laughs> but then they really really amp up the emotional arcs the heart the relationships um the love story makes sense um carl denham's ambitions make sense um and right. darrow's desire to be an actor makes sense the friendship between king kong and and darrow feels genuine and king kong's loneliness comes across on screen and how desperate he is for a friend um and their friendship doesn't feel creepy like in the 76 one yeah <laughs> absolutely um and she isn't just an idol like in the 33 one although that you know all of the but it doesn't at the same time it does not take the 33 version and throw it in the garbage like the 76 movie does it pays homage to it by kind of showing that creation like you were talking about by showing um this this is the like kind of like the behind the scenes true story of king kong almost like and this this is really how it went down and then you look at the 33 version and it's like this is how 1933 interpreted what went down on a film that they made in 1933 yeah and i think the other way that it pays homage to 1933 is just in the tone of the filmmaking peter jackson comes at this with almost a childish delight in this idea of a giant monkey fighting big monsters and dinosaurs. And he like goes all for it. Um, and that's kind of what the 1933 King Kong was, is it was this childhood fantasy and uh, exciting idea that, you know, the new technology was used and used to its full extent to show off. And we bring that back to 2005 and we just have, uh, shinier toys and newer technology and stuff like that. But we also have these little things called character development and stuff <laughs> like that. And uh, Peter Jackson basically takes the time. So this is a long movie. It's three hours. It's Peter Jackson. Um, so it, it has well, all of that stuff. you could probably cut plus... the bug scene if I'm being honest. But uh... <laughs> The bug scene is great. That goes back into this, this <sighs> you know, childish <sighs> wonder of you know, I can't the stand the creepiness bug scene. of bugs, but that's the point. That's the point. It's so yeah, yeah. It has more to up. do with my phobias than his filmmaking. So right, but he's playing on those phobias in whatever degree that everyone has that phobia of weird, creepy crawlies in the dark. Fair enough. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, and I guess the weakest moment of CG I think that gets picked on a lot is. The, uh, the dinosaur stampede. And I can see that watching it again, like you can kind of see um, how the, the, you know, the details in the dinosaurs aren't totally uh, built up as much as they could be. And some of the compositing is a little noticeable, but that's kind of a small scene out of this large movie. And the fact that, you know, King Kong looks really great throughout this film and totally believable. I mean, Andy Serkis is a friggin' genius as far as performance, his motion capture performance. 
Um, and also his performance as the cook. I love the fact that he's in this movie twice. Um, <laughs> he dies twice. He even dies twice. And he has, he has the two most memorable deaths in the movie. Um, his, his human character dies in the bug pit where he gets eaten by these weird, what do you even call those leeches? I, I don't know. I don't want to know something. <laughs> um, and then he gets to die as King Kong. Um, right. Although, although I do want to say, if we can go back to that, that dinosaur scene, while the CGI might be questionable, um, I do want to take the chance to point out the difference in action scenes in 2005 versus the difference in action scenes in 1933. Yeah. Um, in 2005, in, in, the, in the 2005 version, in that dinosaur chase scene, we're not just getting action. We're also getting to see a lot of um, character development and relationship development between the characters. We get to see how um, Carl Denham, his his ambition and his risk and his selfishness, his pride, yeah, almost get pretty much get everybody stuck in this mess. Um, and we get to see uh, Bruce Baxter, the male movie star. We get to see his uh, cowardice. Um, in, in comparison to the characters he plays on screen. And we get to see um, uh, Jack Driscoll, the, the screenwriter and the love the male love interest in the movie, um, try to make sure that everybody's okay as they run along and try to survive himself as well, he's going through this crazy Well, the other thing we get to see scene. is him trying to live out the romantic impression that he writes in his script. Also true. Also true. But that happens throughout this film. Um, again, maybe with the exception of the bug scene, um, with all of the action, we get that, we, we get that character and that heart coming through too. So it's not like empty action only, but it's also, um, it's meaningful action, which I feel is really important about the action movie. And that, that's what makes action so memorable most of the time. Sometimes it's iconic. It's how iconic it looks just the image and the excitement like in 1933 and sometimes it's uh the emotion behind it like um let's say let's say the best example is the lightsaber battle in um the first star wars between obi-wan kenobi and darth vader honestly as a lightsaber battle they don't do much they kind of poke at each other but it's really emotional because of what's going on in the scene for the characters and and that's that's that kind of work is, is what you see in Peter Jackson movies a lot, um, even if you can go a little overboard with the CGI. Um, and you get that in the King Kong here. So I think that's why one of the reasons why you can refer to it, like you said earlier, as the fulfillment is it's that mythos, um, that myth, that legend of King Kong from 1933 brought into the into modern day filmmaking with all this heart and all this technology um, and all this emotion and satisfying character arcs to watch. Yeah. And I think that, you know, some of that transitions into, you know, the way all the characters are, are fleshed out. But I think we want to take a second to especially focus on Anne Darrow's character because she was not handled very tastefully in 1976 and uh, just kind of handled cliche in 1933 as far as she's the woman character and she's uh, the damsel in distress. Yeah, she's the damsel in distress. And in 2005, she definitely has more agency um, as far as, you know, one of the first things she does when she gets captured is take her spiky necklace and jam it into Kong's hand and free herself, uh, which 
you kind of get the feeling that if, like in this one, they never actually show that the natives offer uh, people like the girls from their own tribe to Kong. But if we assume that, which I think we can because we see the, the boneyard and stuff when Kong stops first, we get the idea that most people who are captured just kind of get flung around and then they die and then he throws them away. But she actually, you know, is a force to match with him. Like, even though he's 10 times bigger than she is. And throughout the film, she, she actually works to build a bond with King Kong. And once, like when he gets really upset, she tries to calm him down and all that stuff. So we're actually seeing that beauty and the beast Arabian proverb come to fulfillment and not just being told that, you know, that's what's happening. Uh, and yeah, that's, she's that's both, really nice. Yeah, she's both strong and and she's got a lot of complexity to her, um, like a lot of the characters in this in this film, and they they got that that flushing out when they came to this three hour script. Um, you know, on one hand, she's terrified for her life on the island. She doesn't want to die. Obviously, she's almost always in mortal peril, um, and kind of scared of Kong very scared of Kong, especially at first. But at the right. same time, she doesn't want Kong to get hurt uh, towards the end of, uh, of their island escapade and definitely back in New York. Like, she's built a friendship with Kong, but at the same time, like, he's physically intimidating. He could kill her easily at any time. Um, and, and, you know, if you want to go further, although I don't think this bit is explored as much in the film, like, how does she feel about the fact that he kills so many people um, over the course yeah. of this movie? Um... And the other thing is she doesn't have this she doesn't have any kind of weird attraction to Kong where it's like, I'm gonna stay with him. Like she know she still has the common sense to go with Jack whenever he shows up to rescue her, even though we can see like in her eyes in that moment that she had basically resigned herself to living with Kong for the rest of her life because there's no way that anyone could come through that jungle of horror besides Kong uh yeah. safely. But Jack does and she goes with him. Um, but at that point she had already built up this rapport and is now terrified when they decide to kidnap him because of, uh, Carl Denham's insane, uh, delusions of grandeur, basically. Yeah. And there's a lot of crossing lines in this, uh, or crossing arcs, I should say, in this, in this film. Uh, for instance, uh, in, in 1933, uh, the Driscoll character, was a rough and tumble guy who learned to become slightly more sensitive or the 1933 version of sensitive. Um, but the Driscoll character in 2005, you know, instead of being a beast who is tamed like Kong, his art crosses and goes the other way as he slowly becomes more assertive. He becomes more confident. Uh, a lot of his arcs involve standing up to Carl, braving the jungle for the woman he's in love with, telling the woman he's in love with that he's in love with her um, and kind of growing a backbone. Um, and you also get to see some situational arcs like how um, Andero is tied up at the beginning of Act 2 when uh, when she's kidnapped by Kong. And then at the beginning of Act 3, Kong is tied up in the same way that Andero was at the beginning of Act 2 um, on, the, on the stage in uh, New York. 
he's chained up in in a very similar fashion where his arms are raised above his head and that's that's some nice crossing imagery there so there's a lot more complexity uh to king kong 2005 it was not treated like a b-movie um at all it was a blockbuster and it was kind of nice to see monsters make it in from b-movies into a uh, into a blockbuster movie yeah and then let's just talk a little bit about the fact that a lot of people would rate this film very lowly because it's kind of it is kind of indulgent by peter jackson as far as all of the things that he throws into it people think that it's not a faithful adaptation because it's so over the top and uh I think it's pretty clear what, what we think about it, but it's just interesting. Like on Rotten Tomatoes, this film has a split between uh, critics and audience of 80% critic approval and 50% audience approval, um, which is really interesting for a film like this to have such a, such a gulf there um, between opinions. Yeah, yeah. Typically, you see those tend to be in line, and you, and even what's more, you tend to see audiences be a little more forgiving than critics. Um, right, especially as far as blockbusters and stuff. Oh, especially. Um, but but it's really interesting, and I think if if you give it a shot, and especially if you realize how over the top the 1933 movie was for 1933. Um, you can appreciate King Kong 2005 a lot more. Yeah, I think just watching 1933 gives you an appreciation for 2005. So, you know, if you have this kind of iffy feeling about it, go back and watch the original and then you'll have a whole nother level of appreciation for 2005. Yeah, it's one of my favorite um, double headers, really. If you, if you can last that long, if you can last through a regular length movie and then last through a Peter Jackson length movie, it's a really great doubleheader. Right. Uh, okay, so do we want to move on into our overall notes and talk about King Kong as an entity now in the world? Okay, so what do we think about this King Kong, this wonderful character who is less than 100 years old? And has captured the hearts and minds of generation. Well, maybe not the minds, but the part of the heart that likes action <laughs> scenes and giant monkeys. Um, but but who's, who's become almost global in his appeal along the lines of Godzilla. And has starred in many movies alongside Godzilla. Um, King Kong, you see him on mugs, you see him on t-shirts, you see him on Empire State Building in graphics, not the actual Empire State Building. But he's, he's everywhere. He is basically a myth a legend that came out of a film that somebody made in 1933 and that's really cool and what do we think of that now yeah i think it's interesting i mean we could see traces of you know a giant furry monster you've got like yeti and the bigfoot and stuff that are obviously a lot older but essentially this is coming from one guy who was really fascinated by gorillas when he was a kid and I just think that's really interesting, the fact that, you know, myths and legends don't have to be centuries and centuries old. They can still be created if there's something um, brought to the table that a lot of people identify with in one way or another. And if there is that medium, and in this case, film is such a great medium to get a vision like that out to so many people, it's it's 
really kind of this incredible testament to the power of filmmaking. Right, right. And one of the wonderful things about having um, a legend like that, you know, be effectively birthed in the cinema and live its life in the cinema is you get to see a reflection of the development of the medium cinema film. You get to see how that grows up alongside Kong and how does that impact itself? Like if you look at the VFX, if you look at the way the stories are told, if you look at the representation of the characters within each of these three films, you don't just get a sense of the growth of Kong as an idea and as an idol or as a symbol um, throughout culture, but also, you know, you can you can trace how film develops too. You can trace how um, how the effects develop. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, and it, yeah, like you were saying, especially since it started so early in filmmaking. I mean, nineteen thirty three is like we barely had talkies at that point. Like we we had just come out of the silent film era, um, and the fact that the other fact is that King Kong is such like. You can't make a King Kong movie without using VFX in some way or another. Um, and so, you're right, it is a really interesting barometer because any time that is revisited, we're going to see the VFX of that time because it's so ingrained with the character itself. Um, I guess the only way to, to avoid that would be to do uh, an animated version, which there haven't been any feature film animated versions uh to my knowledge that focus on king kong but you know you've got not only these three uh film versions but you've got spin-offs as far as uh sequels to uh the first two of these movies like you were saying crossovers with uh toho studios godzilla toho actually being the studio that akira kurosawa worked for most of his career um and you know integration with all of these different elements um but yeah as we've been saying you track the quality and the type of visual effects through the ages um i guess the only other thing that hasn't been tried is to actually use a gorilla and do that uh you know (laughs) the mouth moving thing or i guess he doesn't even talk so yeah just use an actual gorilla and give him a doll and have him walk around a set or something like that but even that is effectively practical VFX. Um, yeah, miniatures and stuff yeah. like that, yeah. Unless you can recreate the exact circumstances in which you actually have a giant ape, a, a King Kong, right. then, then this is going to be a VFX-based story. Um, and I feel like a lot of people, and, and I, I even feel like this a lot of the times too, that VFX can't be and isn't a fundamental part of filmmaking it's it's an add-on but is it is is it not kind of central to how we make make film i mean everything that we put on film everything that we put on digital cinema whatever you want to call it is effectively to some extent or another a faked image us trying to create a visual effect of something um and and over the course of film's history, that technology has gotten um, has has grown, has gotten better. I would say um, some would say it's gone too far in this direction or gone too far in that direction. Um, but I, I don't, I don't, I want to resist the urge to vilify VFX like so many people do, or vilify especially CGI because a lot of people um, 
like to vilify CGI. Yeah. And I, I can be guilty of that too. But I think, you know, the, the saga of King Kong is, you know, a champion of the side that says, no, VFX can be a fun, fundamental part of filmmaking. It can make a legendary character. It can create a modern day myth. Um, it can create an icon in King Kong. Um, and it can make a really good movie too. Yeah, because, I mean, we would not have King Kong without VFX and people who had an imagination that was greater than what can be, you know, literally pointed a camera at uh, and finding ways to create that. And I think that that is the attitude that we need to approach VFX with. And I think we've touched this uh, on this on the podcast before is that there's probably... 80% of VFX in movies no one ever notices. It's, you know, cars and buildings and stuff like that that weren't actually broken or thrown or whatever. And it's just that that small percentage of ones that don't work, they get people all riled up and, and stuff like that. And they're still, you know, we are not at the end of film history. So we still have time to, uh, you know, I don't know if there will ever be a moment where we can completely uh, lose track of the line between VFX and uh, literally captured material. Um, I think there will always be that that uncanny valley. I think is the term of the effect where you know yeah. the human brain always notices something. So I I think we've gotten pretty close to the uh, the closing the gap on that uncanny valley, and so I think the the points where the valley is wider or narrower, uh, we could stop nitpicking them uh, at right. this point. Right. But, I mean, you know, the, the history of filmmaking is the history of fakery, um, of, of creating stories that didn't really happen or recreating stories that did happen um, in fantastical ways on screen, but still quintessentially fake. Um, Maybe excluding documentary, but even documentary to some extent. I mean, even documentary to a certain, like like you said, is 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 kind of fake. You know, you're not seeing the entirety of reality through a film. It it is it is about creating things that are unreal and putting them on a screen uh, for people and making them think that they are real while you're watching it. And VFX is a big part of that, and that's Kong. That's King Kong. Yeah, and I don't even know if making people think that they're real is such a priority as losing them in the story. If your story is engaging, yeah, that's it has, yeah, that's what I meant. Right. If it has those, if it has some amount of universal truth, that's why I think that the 1933 Kong sticks with people so much is that 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 Beauty and the Beast dynamic that, like we've been talking about. Uh, gentle soul uh, uh, touching a rough soul is a universal element that everyone can identify with um, and it's just a matter of portraying it uh, less well as maybe in the 1976 version or <laughs> or uh, more well in the in the 2005 version and finding some way to merge that universal truth with um are perhaps more superficial, but perhaps no less valid love of things that blow up and bite and uh, roar. Right, right. You know, I found it a little funny earlier when you said uh, 
take specifically this this set of what we're about to say with a grain of salt because I kind of thought everybody took everything we said with a grain of salt. But oh yeah, hopefully <laughs> but you do. Even if you took everything we said with a grain of salt, which maybe you should, um, don't take this next thing with a grain of salt. And that's if whether or not you like King Kong or you don't like King Kong, whether or not you like VFX or you don't like VFX, whether or not you thought movies have gotten stupid or you can't stand the sight of black and white movies. Um, remember that movies are a form of storytelling and storytelling is effectively myth-making. And if nothing else, that is incredible. That is incredible. That a, a, a boy who just really liked big apes, big monkeys and wanted to make a movie about them effectively created a world symbol um an icon that has survived almost a century so far and probably will for much longer yeah absolutely and has is almost identifiable to everybody on the face of the planet who's who's seen or experienced some kind of merchandise some kind of content (laughs) with king kong in it um or just been like "Hmm, i wonder what that giant monkey on top of that big building's all about i see it everywhere um but just remember like storytelling is awesome and that's why we like doing this podcast and like film and all that jazz and if you're listening to this podcast i hope you do too i think you do and i think you get what i'm trying to say here that it's just so awesome that one one guy with one dream with a bunch of help can make a myth and like you're talking about with you know the different levels of fakery that cinema brings to its storytelling this week we focused a lot on a fantastical element which you know no one's going to believe that this actually happened but next week we are looking at the other end of cinema fakery with biopics where we'll be looking at three movies that uh, attempt to convey in some manner of truth the lives of three different people so do you want to tell us what those will be, Alex? Um, the three movies we're going to be talking about next week, and I'm very excited for these three films, um, are Amadeus from 1984, The Last Emperor from 1987, and The Aviator from 2004. And all of them cover real-life people who really lived, um, and they represent them in certain ways that may or may not be true. So it should be a fun week. It should be a long week. Biopics yeah. tend to be kind of long, so just prepare yourself for that. Um, At least two of these border on three hours, I think. Oh, certainly. Um, So so just prepare yourself for that. But trust me, it's worth the watch. Well, that's about all the time we have for this episode. If you have movie suggestions for us or just want to reach out, I can be found on Twitter at at JS Satchel. And I'm at Alex Geringer. And to find links to things that we talked about today, you can view them on the blog at thefilmlings.wordpress.com. If you like the show, let us know. Leave us a review on iTunes so other people will know what we're all about. We definitely appreciate it. Talk to you next week. All right, see ya. But can we talk about whether or not Nicole Kidman's juggling was CGI? <laughs> I think it was probably CGI because it was, it was rocks. They wouldn't have risked, you know throwing rocks up in the air so yeah maybe maybe they had a stunt double do the juggling Ooh, a juggling stunt double i like the idea of that